Headlines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Shane Stranahan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. So coming up is going to be more than 300 leaders of the Communist Party are meeting in China for the sixth plenum of the Central Committee. Now, this is considered to be important because it comes just before the National Congress takes an effect and National Congress takes place every five years. What they're expected to pass is a re resolution on the history of the first 100 years of the Communist Party. And this would also be somewhat of a platform for Xi Jinping um, to take advantage of a 2018 provision that would allow him to extend the amount of time that he stays in office for another five-year term. Up to this point, they had a two-year term limit. To have a conversation on what this um, plenium is going to be about, why it's important, and what does it mean to have this kind of resolution on the history of the first hundred years of the Communist Party. To have a conversation about it, we're joined with Carl Jia. He's the host of Silk and Steel podcast focused on China and surrounding regions and their history, culture, and politics. Carl, what's going on, my man? Hey, how are you? Thank you for uh, inviting me back. No, absolutely. You were the first person I thought of when I was reading this. Because um, the West often have a tendency to look at this stuff with a dark lens. Um, and in the article that I was reading, though, they still had to admit Xi Jinping is extremely popular. And his priorities are going to be, you know, lifting people out of poverty, dealing with this kind of modern technology, not to mention military strength, et cetera, et cetera. Um, explaining why he's very popular. But of course, they always puts the stuff in somewhat of a dark light, like he's trying to establish himself among the um, the greats of Chinese history and so forth. What is, just as a basic understanding, what is plenniums? Why is the sixth one important? And what does this lead into when they're talking about resolutions that are going to be passed? Well, these are just... Um... Uh, 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 gatherings of the, the the top leaders every every uh, few years. So this is this is uh, I mean this is really the, it's important because it lays out kind of the China's plan for the for the next next few years. I mean, like everybody is familiar with probably familiar with uh, five year plans, right? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of like the five year plans, but more for uh, like the overall planning of of china's government not just just the in the economic field if that makes sense yeah no no no. i think i understand that i mean so it could be pretty much on any policy it doesn't have to be purely economics it could be military it could be um domestic etc cetera, etc cetera. sure yep exactly so when they're saying that it's going to be over the first hundred years of the communist party what does that mean i mean I know what he means in the okay. in, in the strictest sense, but <laughs> what what is the point of a resolution on the first hundred years of the Communist Party? Well, I mean, this is really just uh, just a like a review of the history. Um, I mean, one one what the party is 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 doing is you know uh, sure, continue to shore up its own legitimacy um, by presenting its own side of the history, right? Just like um, uh, like any <laughs> any other any other um, government in the world. And, and what this, uh, the, in this year, we were coming up in a lot of important anniversaries. So for example, 2021 is a hundredth uh, anniversary, year anniversary of, um, of, the, of the Chinese revolution in 1911, which overthrew the thousand year old monarchy. That is a, really the picture i think that's presented in the new york times article they had 1911 to 2021 and they actually has a, a hanging a portrait of dr sun yat-sen the uh, 
um, the leader leader of the the Chinese Revolution in 1911, who is under both on mainland China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the, a lot of this is just kind of a, a celebration of of these anniversary dates. But at, at the same time, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Xi Jinping is very popular. In fact, he has um, the the Chinese Communist Party has has garnered even more popularity in the last two, two and a half years because of its response to the COVID pandemic, uh, especially after the Chinese public have witnessed what happened over in countries like United States, for yeah. example. And, and there are dead, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so people are, are actually grateful that that their government is taking effective measures to protect its uh its populace and that that's what china do best uh, in, to to mobilize resources in a in a crisis um so yeah so i i mean like it's understandable new york times will always trying to throw shade on, <laughs> on anything yes yeah. yes it does it, it looks for anything to throw shade but at the very least it had to own up to the fact that the guy is extremely popular are there any resolutions that are expected to come out of this outside of just the announcement of historical um, precedent. And, you know, the New York Times tried to make it look as if it was a re, um, hi, revisionist history, like as if it was like, oh, he's trying to change the stuff around to give the best light. But that's how it sounded like they were they were going with. But that's not really what's taking place, is it? Um, also, what are the typical resolutions that come out of these plenums? Um, these are, like I mentioned, they usually lay out the the plans, um, the the you know the the Chinese government plans for the next few years, um, and for, uh, I mean, the, the, the what New York, there's a New York Times article um, uh, that we were discussing. Basically, they were speculating, uh, you will, you will basically, uh, you know, also officially announced uh, the Xi Jinping, basically Xi Jinping's next term. That that remained to be seen, but it, 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 I mean, it's likely because yeah. uh, right now Xi Jinping is doing a lot of things in China, you know, especially in the last few years. So it's likely that he will stay on power beyond the, the first the, the first two terms to see, see it through. I mean, that's one of... Um, uh, it's also one of the differences between China and, uh, say, U.S. Because uh, we we operate in on election cycles, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. <laughs> everything is geared towards the next election, winning the next next election. Uh, the Chinese leader can afford um, to devote energies uh, to to a more long term planning because they didn't have to, you know, bother with election campaigns and stuff like that. Okay, that makes sense. I think I understand that. Um, there's another issue that's popped up that I thought was really interesting. So Mark Milley, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, or Joint Chiefs yeah, of Staff Chairman, um, he made a point last week. And he basically said, we're witnessing one of the largest shifts in global geostrategic power the world has witnessed. And he says, quote, they're clearly challenging us regionally, and their aspiration is to challenge the United States globally. Now, what he's talking about is basically China's military capability well, military and economic capability um, that China is basically taking the world stage. And, you know, some of the things that are referenced are the hypersonic missiles that China was able to basically, um, let's say, nail down well before the United States was able to get involved in it. Russia was able to do it first. Um, also, the vehicle that basically went around the world 
hit its target. I mean, I think it was like 30 miles out of its target. But again, at some at point where you had a hypersonic vehicle go around the world, the fact that it's anywhere close to its target is pretty phenomenal. Not to mention putting things on the moon um, or, or things in space, working in coordination with Russia in order to put um, satellites and whatnot either around the moon or Mars, I forget which one it is. But all of these things bespeak of high technological capabilities. And apparently our military is somewhat getting concerned despite some of the comments that have been coming out of the Department of Defense saying, yes, we could undoubtedly um, defend Taiwan. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I, I took this as, well, yeah, of course China is doing this with all the bellicosity being directed at it. It would be insane if it didn't take provisions to defend itself and to get across that it was willing to defend itself. Is there another way yeah. to look at this, though? Oh Yeah, I, I don't think... The PLA Navy is is uh, gonna sell its fleet anytime into Gulf of Mexico. I mean, <laughs> like the way the United States Seventh Fleet is sailing into the South China Sea right now. So China, of course, China um, wants U.S. out of militarily out of East Asia. I mean, that posture uh, has been consistent since the time of Korean War, and that's that's one of the reason when when China and U.S. are on, on the opposite camp, both in the Korean War and and during the Vietnam War, it was to push the U.S. Uh, military um, uh, presence out of East Asia. And 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 let's look back historically. You know, like South China Sea used to be basically American Lake during the uh, Vietnam War, you know, because U.S. had bases both in South Vietnam and the Philippines at the time. Um, you travel unimpededly through, throughout South China Sea, you know, you, you, to the point that it creates a Gulf of Tonkin incident. Gulf of Tonkin is, is, a, is between Vietnam and North Vietnam and China. And, and now what U.S. is really complaining about is that it's once hegemony in East East Asia is no longer assured with the rise of China. Um, uh, like with uh, we we have talked about on on your show before about the Chinese um, PLA f aircraft flight over the t Taiwan so-called ADIA zone, which was drawn up by United States in the 1950s, and uh, this th that was specifically to challenge when U.S. Uh, sail its armada into South China Sea. This, so U.S. is still in South, U.S. is still planning to stay in and stay involved militarily in East Asia. And that's, that's, that presence is increasingly challenged by the, the rise in China's military capability. But I, I don't think China is even interested to challenge U.S., say, in places like um Persian Gulf or or North Atlantic. I mean, I don't I don't see China, but definitely China is very interested to see U.S. military out of its own neighborhood, uh, its own backyard. Uh, you know, East China Sea, South China Sea for sure. And uh, I, I think I think one of the common uh, recurring thing we have talked about on your show is the 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 heightened tension between China and U.S. is also very convenient for the U.S. military industrial complex to continually demand and justify their trillion dollar budget. And um, for, for China's supersonic missile, I, it's not, I don't think it's a, it's a game changer because China has uh, had a ballistic missile capability of striking continental United States since, since 1990s. Um, and, and 
I mean, this is just this is the, like the supersonic missile. Sure, that's just another another tool uh, in 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 China's toolkit. Um, it makes it harder for um, the U.S. Uh, ballistic ballistical missile defense system to to counterattack because current uh, U.S. missile defense system is geared toward ballistic missiles, not not supersonic missiles that that uh, circumnavigate the globe and can change its trajectory on a dime. Um, in, but fundamentally, you know, the, the the mutual assured destruction balance still in place. I mean, China still maintain a credible second strike capability uh in a in a nuclear exchange so i i, I don't and then also that's like the i think that's we can all agree that's a path that nobody wants to go down an actual nuclear exchange between these two superpowers um so i i don't i don't know how i don't think the supersonic uh uh, missile is really a, a game changer. More, more a uh, uh, area where U.S. military was kind of caught by surprise. Like, wow, we didn't know China had the capability. It's also a bit of show of technological acumen, and you know the ability to get the research, the R and D done to make that happen when the U.S. hasn't. Sure, I think it's part of what you know, which Meral is pointing at. Carl, thanks for for being with us. There's another angle on this whole conversation that I wanted to go to for a second. <clears throat> Been thinking, you know. It seems like we're in rabble-rousing for war mode, even if that's not going to actually get to war. It seems like, you know, the DOD needs to find a way to make money, and so they're turning to China. And who knows what that will actually turn into. But I'm curious, on the other side of this, looking for some kind of resolution to this where America and China don't go to war, but instead work together on the world stage, this is a larger question. But Carl, culturally, not like in terms of the geopolitics, but I'm just curious, culturally, what would we, in a, in a, workable situation where we had sort of respect for each other there was maybe a competitive edge to the relationship but we weren't at each other's uh throats constantly again in this sort of utopian scenario here culturally what would that look like how do you think we would treat each other as nations what would we think of each other i mean i can start briefly it seems to me at least right now that a lot of americans would recognize uh there's a, a bunch of discipline and culturally from the bottom down all i mean from the bottom all the way up to the top in terms of the amount that Chinese people save, passing it forward to their kids. There are things like that. I'm just throwing that out as one kind of way that I could see Americans, okay, wow, the Chinese are doing cool things. Um, and there's a, a way that we can respect them and, and operate on that level. I hope this makes sense, Carl, but I'm trying to look for some sort of resolution to this. And I'm curious, if we had a working relationship, what would that relationship look like, Carl? Yeah, I I mean I think we we don't necessarily need to uh you know try to reach for utopia where all we all you know holding hands singing kumbaya yeah. but but if we can go back to the US China relationship pre 2010s I mean that that I think that that would be a first major step because at that time at least uh, all the U.S. president from Clinton to Obama were talking about strategic partnership rather than strategic competitor with China. Um, and, 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 you know, we, there's our actual uh, very urgent and, and tangible goals both countries can work toward. Uh, for example, the global climate change. Uh, that, that actually requires cooperation between U.S. and China on many levels. So, so these, are, these are the things that I think the two sides could, if they decide to put aside the geopolitical competition, you know, that things that they can actually, there's a lot of common ground to build build upon, I think. That, that is 
me being hopeful, of course. Well, same. Same, but optimistically, I hope that we can get to it. I just hope that it doesn't involve a war sometime in the intervening period, of course, which is what everybody's pointing to. We, we keep going back and forth on this one, Carl. The nuclear exchange thing. Right now, it seems like the U.S. obviously has the leading edge on the nuclear game. If, if, uh, if it's permitted to, to use the term game, being as nuclear war is so morbid. But it seems like we have the edge. But you're saying, hopefully, we're not crazy enough to try to push that edge. But we've had other guests on the show come on and say they think we are. They think they're truly unhinged people <laughs> who, would, who would start to consider pushing the button, whatever Mark Milley protests about what Trump wouldn't do or whatever, what authority he has. The point is, you know, when push comes to shove, maybe we just might get insane enough. The hotheads in the room might get hot enough. They might actually do it. Are you sort of decisive? You just don't see that happening? Or are you hopeful that that's not going to happen, Carl? <laughs> I think it's both. I mean, this is not the first time that uh, people in U.S. administration threaten a nuclear war. I mean, back, even back in 1958, during the second Taiwan Strait crisis, the U.S., uh, I think even even as far back as the first Taiwan Strait crisis in 1954, the U.S. Uh, uh, administration under Eisenhower at the time, they actually announced that they they, they had planned to use nuclear weapon against China. Okay. If China were to make a military maneuver, a grab for the offshore islands, uh, we're not even talking about Taiwan. We're talking about the Taiwan uh, government-controlled offshore islands of uh, one mile offshore of China, mainland Chinese coast. If if China made any kind of uh, uh, you know attempt to to say amphibious landing on these uh, small islands of Kinmen. Uh, one mile off the uh, off the mainland Chinese coast that U.S. would consider using nuclear weapons. So there, there's always some really crazy unhinged people in the administration. But um, I I I'm hope hoping <laughs> the reason prevail at the end. Uh, the, the difference though, back in 1950s, China didn't have a nuclear de deterrent then. Uh, you know, China exploded its first nuclear device in 1964. So mm -hmm. today they do have. Oh, well, according to most estimate, about 300 uh, nuclear warheads. And that's what China maintained for its minimal deterrent uh, stockpile. Of course, you know, U.S. have thousands. Um, and But that's not the, really the point. You know, U.S. have, have the capability to destroy the Earth many, many times. But what, what's, what's the point of that? China just maintains enough nuclear warheads that to makes to, to maintain credible deterrence deterrence for, uh, you know, uh, 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 say like a, like a U.S. first strike scenario. So I, I, I don't see we are there yet. I don't, I don't, um, I'm, I'm sure there are unhinged people in the, especially in the, in the military establishment, but I think overall, um, there is enough, um, clear heads, at least in the civilian government at this point to put a stop to that. Fingers crossed from your mouth to God's ears. Because um, sometimes it doesn't necessarily seem that way. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg mentioned that, saying in the 60s that the United States government was willing to use nuclear weapons in order to defend um, Taiwan. But you make an exceptional point. That was when there was no parity, meaning, you know, they didn't, China didn't necessarily have the capabilities of attacking the United States. The United States had the capability of attacking China with weapons um, like that. Um, one, one other thing I wanted to get into, energy demands. So... Right now, Eurasia, I guess you can say parts of Europe, are basically suffering all sorts of an energy crisis um, with Russia giving out gas, well, not giving out, but selling gas 
to many of the places, China included, meaning increasing the supplies. What caused that energy crisis um, in China? And how did it have any kind of effects on, I guess, the items that China is producing or um, shipping in general? Well, um, Europe has its uh, very own specific circumstances because you realize a large amount of its ga- natural gas from the from uh, the Russian supply to to keep Europe warm during the winter, and and at the same time, you know, natural gas is also a lot cleaner, say, than coal, uh, and also in terms of uh, carbon emissions, and that is why also China is increasingly switching. To coal, uh, to natural gas fire power plants, uh, because you know China has its own uh, climate uh, change, climate change policy goals to reach carbon neutral by 2060. And one way they're trying to do that is to switch, uh, you know, the over reliance on coal as a source of um, a source of fossil fuel and po- and power. And and that's why they're building the, uh, the they're working with Russia to build the new gas pipeline from Siberia, the Siberian Power Line Number Two, that will uh, supply the uh, additional Russian gas to China. Um, I think you know China has its own um, like I I I don't think China necessarily. China does coordinate with Russia in many ways, but in terms of, uh, say, Russian energy policy vis-a-vis Europe, I, I, I'm not. I don't see China is necessarily involved. That China is more involved in trying to acquire uh, and secure its own energy supplies from places including Russia. That makes perfect sense. I wanted to go back. There's a cultural angle here, and it kind of comes back to the conversation I was uh, in the bathroom at the time. But you guys were talking about the sixth plenum and uh, allegations the New York Times made of rewriting history, whatever. And, and I heard, you know, I heard your bits on that, but there's one event that comes to mind particularly, or one figure, 1911, the 1911 uh, reform, revolution, you know, liberalization, whatever, modernization of China as it's painted on the Western side, a major figure in that, from the American perspective, at least, I don't know how, figure, how major he actually was, Homer Lee, as a sort of little known American adventurer, author and geopolitical strategist, literally how he's represented on Wikipedia, if you choose to look him up. Anyway, he played a part in that, basically supporting the 1911 Chinese Republican Revolution. It's that kind of thing. If we were able to rewrite our relationship, and I'm speaking about America, we were able to rewrite a relationship with the Chinese in the hopes that they might be willing to do the same thing with us, where it's like, wow, we kind of have some some mutual history and, and potentially a mutual destiny or something like that. Again, I don't want to be too utopian and there's always going to be a competitive edge. But even the AUKUS deal, I guess circling around it a little bit, it was the UK, it was the United Kingdom, the you know, Great Britain, the British Empire that did the whole Hong Kong seizure opium war thing. It wasn't the Americans. And I guess looking forward, I'm trying to figure out what, what the common ground might be. And I'm grasping at it. Carl, I hope this makes yeah. sense. What's, yeah. what's your take? I, I uh yeah, I mean, actually, there are plenty of period of cooperation in the past that both sides could draw inspiration from, and particularly during World War II. You know, United States was U.S. Uh, uh, was China's ally in in the war, and uh, I remember growing up in 1980s China. That that was a brief kind of honeymoon period between U.S. and China after the Nixon <clears throat> uh, visit. And during that time, that's when I started learning about like the the Flying Tigers. These are the American pilots who came to China first as a like volunteer volunteers to to um, help safeguarding 
the skies of Chinese cities from from the Japanese bombing. And then later, uh, they flew over the flu supplies to China over the Himalayan hump. So these are are still the the, the flying tigers has a legacy in China that's still very much the memory is still very much cherished and uh, and treasured. You know, I went to. Um, uh, a World War II museum in far, <coughs> far southwest Yunnan, uh, near the border with Myanmar. Uh, they had a World War II museum there. I went in. They have a whole entire exhibit devoting to the flying tigers and the <coughs> and the Americans that came to help help China during World War II. I, I think there there are many instances in history that, that I think those that when two sides were on the same side, and I think. Um, if we ever go back to that, you know, the 1980 level of 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 um, uh, of almost friendship like status between U.S. and China, yeah. those period will probably be reemphasized. Uh, that's I imagine. I would hope so. Under Deng Xiaoping, big era there. Tomorrow you're coming in. Yeah, I, I just I mean, I think the difficulty with that is the competition issue. Like as long as a perfect example, when Bernie Sanders was running against Hillary Clinton, um, as long as Hillary Clinton believed that Sanders wasn't an option, wasn't a contest, et cetera, they were close friends. They were buddy buddy. The moment that they became competition at that point, things soured. And it seems like that's the relationship between the United States and China at this point. The United States consider China an existential threat. And because of that, it, competition almost just kind of springs out of it. I mean, what will be a pathway just from your take on this and just from your um, historical reference, what would be a pathway to try right. to get around that? And is there even a well, pathway to get around it? <laughs> well, let's keep in mind right now, this the, the, the U.S.-China relationship, uh, the U.S. has been uh, it, it, the, the primary driver in the in the latest downturn, downturn spiral. Um, so all you really takes is a, a change of mindset on the U.S. leadership right to to come to terms with china because china still very much want to maintain a, a cordial and friendly friend, friend friendly relations with us i mean uh, unlike the 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 unlike the much of the national security establishment on us that sees china's existential threat to the us hegemony um china still sees a lot of benefit to cooperate oh, we're gonna with have to US, end this here and i totally understand your point thank you very much the voice you listen to is carl Jia, host of silk and steel podcasts on china and surrounding areas you guys are listening to fault lines with thomas and back in a moment